Section 17 of Essays and Dialogues. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays and Dialogues by Giacomo Leopardi. Translated by Charles Edwards. Section 17. Parini on Glory. Chapters 7 through 9. Chapter 7. Hitherto we have considered writings in general, and certain things relating to light literature in particular, towards which I see you are more especially attracted. Let us now turn to philosophy, though it must not be supposed that this science is separable from the study of letters. Perhaps you will think that because philosophy is derived from reason, which among civilized people is usually a stronger power than the imagination or the affections, the value of philosophical works ought to be more universally recognized than that of poems and other writings which treat of the pleasurable and the beautiful. It is, however, my opinion that poetry is better understood and appreciated than philosophy. In the first place it is certain that a subtle intelligence and great power of reasoning are not sufficient to ensure much progress in philosophy. Considerable imaginative power is also requisite. Indeed, judged from the nature of their intellects, Descartes, Galileo, Leibniz, Newton, and Vico would have made excellent poets. And, on the other hand, Homer, Dante, and Shakespeare might have been great philosophers. This subject would require much elaboration. I will therefore merely affirm that none but philosophers can perfectly appreciate the value and realize the charm of philosophical books. Of course I refer to their substance, and not to whatever superficial merit they may have, whether of language, style, or anything else. And, just as men are by nature unpoetical, and consequently rarely catch the spirit of a poem or discern its imagery, although they may follow the meaning of its words, similarly people unaccustomed to meditate and philosophize within themselves or who are incapable of deep sustained thought cannot comprehend the truths that a philosopher expounds however clear and logical his deductions arguments and conclusions may be although they understand the words that he uses and their signification because being unable or unused to analyze the essence of things by means of thought or to separate their own ideas into divisions or to join and bind together a number of these ideas or simultaneously to grasp with the mind many particulars so as to deduce a single general rule from them or to follow unweariedly with the mind's eye a long series of truths mutually connected, or to discover the subtle and hidden connection between each truth and a hundred others, they can with difficulty, if at all, grasp and follow his working, or experience the impressions proved by the philosopher. Therefore they can neither understand nor estimate rightly all the influences that led him to this or that opinion, and made him affirm or deny this or that thing, and doubt such and such another, Possibly they may understand his ideas, but they neither recognize their truth nor probability, because they are unable to test either the one or the other. They are like those cold and passionless men who are incapable of appreciating the fancies and imagery of the poets. And you know it is common to the poet and the philosopher to penetrate into the depths of the minds of men, and thence to bring into light all their hidden emotions, profundities, and secret working, with their respective causes and effects. Thus, men who are incapable of sympathy with the poet and his thoughts are also incapable of entering into the thoughts of the philosopher. This is why we see daily many meritorious works, clear and intelligible to all, interpreted by some people as containing a thousand undoubted truths, and, by others, a thousand patent errors. They are attacked in public and private, not only from motives of malice, interest, and other similar causes, but also because of the incapacity of readers, and their inability to comprehend the certainty of the principles, the correctness of the deductions and conclusions, and the general fitness, sufficiency, and truth of the reasoning put forward. It often happens that philosophical writings of the most sublime nature are accused of obscurity, not necessarily because they are obscure, but either because their vein of thought is of too profound or novel a nature to be easily intelligible, 
or because the reader himself is too dense to be a competent judge of such works. Think, then, how difficult it must be to gain praise for philosophical writings, however meritorious they may be, for there can be no doubt that the number of really profound philosophers, who alone can appreciate one another, is in the present day very small, although philosophy is more cultivated than in past times. I will not refer to the various sects into which those who profess philosophy are divided. Each sect ordinarily refuses to allow that there is aught estimable in the others. This is not only from unwillingness, but also because it occupies itself with different principles of philosophy. CHAPTER Eight, If, as the result of your learning and meditation, you chance to discover some important truth, not only formerly unknown but quite unlooked for, and even antagonistic to the opinions of the day, you must not anticipate in your lifetime any peculiar commendation for this discovery. You will gain no esteem, even from the wise, except perhaps from a very few, until by frequent and varied reiteration of these truths the ears of men have become accustomed to their sound. Then only, after a long time, the intellect begins to receive them. For no truth contrary to current opinion, even though demonstrable with almost geometrical certitude, can ever, unless capable of material proof, be suddenly established. Time, custom, and example alone are able to give it a solid foundation. Men accustom themselves to belief, as to everything else. Indeed, they generally believe from habit, and not from any sentiment of conviction within their minds. At length it happens that the once-questioned truth is taught to children, and is universally accepted. People are then astonished that it was ever unknown to them, and they ridicule their ancestors and contemporaries for the ignorance and obstinacy they manifested in opposing it. The greater and more important the new truths, so much the greater will be the difficulty of procuring acceptance for them, since they will overthrow a proportionately large number of opinions hitherto rooted in the minds of men. For even acute and practised intellects do not easily enter into the spirit of reasonings which demonstrate new truths that exceed the limits of their own knowledge, especially when these are opposed to beliefs long established within them. Descartes, in his geometrical discoveries, was understood by but very few of his contemporaries. It was the same with Newton. Indeed, the condition of men preeminent in knowledge is somewhat similar to that of literary men, and savants who live in places innocent of learning. The latter are not deservedly esteemed by their neighbours. The former fail to be duly appreciated by their contemporaries. Both are often despised for their difference in manner of life and opinions from other men, who neither do justice to their ability nor to the writings they put forth in proof of it. There is no doubt that the human race makes continual progress in knowledge. As a body, its march is slow and measured, but it includes certain great and remarkable minds which, having devoted themselves to speculation about the sensible or intelligible phenomena of the universe, and the pursuit of truths, travel, nay sometimes flash, to their conclusions in an immeasurably short space of time. And the rapid progress of these intellects stimulates other men, who hasten their footsteps so as to reach, later on, the place where these superior beings rested. But not until the lapse of a century or more do they attain the knowledge possessed by an extraordinary intellect of this kind. It is ordinarily believed that human knowledge owes most of its progress to these supreme intellects, which arise from time to time like miracles of nature. I, on the contrary, think that it owes more to men of common powers than to those who are exceptionally endowed. Suppose a case in which one of the latter, having rivaled his contemporaries in knowledge, advances independently, and takes a lead of, say, ten paces. Most other men, far from feeling disposed to follow him, regard his progress in silence or else ridicule it. Meanwhile, a number of moderately clever men, partly aided, perhaps, by the ideas and discoveries of the genius, but principally through their own endeavors, conjointly advance one step. The masses unhesitatingly follow them, being attracted by the not inordinate novelty, and also by the number of those who are its authors. 
In process of time, thanks to the exertions of these men, the tenth step is accomplished. And thus the opinions of the genius are universally received throughout the civilized world, but their originator, dead long ago, only requires a late and unseasonable reputation. This is due partly to the fact that he is forgotten, or to the low esteem in which he was held when living, added to which men are conscious that they do not owe their knowledge to him, and that they are already his equals in erudition, and will soon surpass him if they have not done so already. They are also his superiors, in that time has enabled them to demonstrate and affirm truths that he only imagined, to prove his conjectures, and give better form and order to his inventions, almost, as it were, maturing them. Perchance, after a time, some student engaged in historical research may justly appraise the influence of this genius, and may announce him to his countrymen with great eclat. But the fame that may ensue from this will soon give way to renewed oblivion. The progress of human knowledge, like a falling weight, increases momentarily in its speed, nonetheless very rarely men of a generation change their beliefs or recognize their errors, so as to believe at one time the opposite of what they previously believed. Each generation prepares the way for its successor to know and believe many things contrary to its own knowledge and belief. But most men are as little conscious of the increasing development of their knowledge and the inevitable mutation of their beliefs, as they are sensible of the perpetual motion of the earth. And a man never alters his opinion so as to be conscious of the alteration. But were he suddenly to embrace an opinion totally discordant with his old beliefs, he could not fail to perceive the change. It may therefore be said that ordinarily no truths, except such as are determinable by the senses, will be believed by the contemporaries of their discoverer. CHAPTER Nine. Now let us suppose that every difficulty be overcome, and that aided by fortune you have actually in your lifetime acquired not only celebrity but glory. What will be the fruit of this? In the first place, men will wish to see you and make your acquaintance. They will indicate you as a distinguished man, and will honor you in every possible way. Such are the best results of literary glory. It would seem more natural to look for such demonstrations in small than in large towns, for these latter are subject to the distracting influence of wealth and power, and all the arts which serve to amuse and enliven the inactive hours of men's lives. But because small towns are ordinarily wanting in things necessary to stimulate literary excellence, they are rarely the abode of men devoted to literature and study. The people of such places esteem learning and wisdom, and even the fame men seek by these means, at a very low value. Neither the one nor the other are objects of envy to them. And if a man who is a distinguished scholar takes up his residence in a small town, his notability is of no advantage to him. Rather the contrary, for though his fame would secure him high honor in towns not far distant, he is there regarded as the most forlorn and obscure individual in the place. Just as a man who possessed nothing but an abundance of silver and gold would be even poorer than other men, in a place where these metals were valueless. Similarly, a wise and studious man who makes his abode in a place where learning and genius are unknown, far from being considered superior to other men, will be despised and scornfully treated, unless he happen to have some more material possessions. Yet such a man is often given credit for possessing much greater knowledge than he really has, though this reputation does not procure him any especial honor from these people. When I was a young man, I used occasionally to return to Bozizio, my native place, Everyone there knew that I spent my time in study and writing. The peasants gave me credit for being poet, philosopher, doctor, mathematician, lawyer, theologian, and sufficiently a linguist to know all the languages in the world. They used to question me indiscriminately on any subject, or about any trifle that chanced to enter their minds. Yet they did not hold me in much esteem, and thought me less instructed than the learned people of all other places. But whenever I gave them reason to think my learning was not as extensive as they supposed, I fell vastly in their estimation and in the end they used to persuade themselves that after all my knowledge was no greater than theirs. 
we have already noticed the difficulties to be overcome in large towns before glory can be acquired or the fruit of it enjoyed i will now add that although no fame is more difficult to merit than that of being an excellent poet writer or philosopher nothing is less lucrative to the possessor you know that the misery and poverty of the greatest poets both in ancient and modern times is proverbial homer like his poetry is involved in mystery his country life and history are an impenetrable secret to men but amid this uncertainty and ignorance there is an unshaken tradition that homer was poor and unhappy it is as if time wished to bear witness that the fate of other noble poets was shared by the prince of poetry but passing over the other benefits of glory we will simply consider what is called honor no part of fame is usually less honorable and more useless than this it may be that so many people obtain it undeservedly or even because of the extreme difficulty of meriting it at all certain it is that such reputation is scarce esteemed if regarded as trustworthy or perhaps it is due to the fact that most clever half-cultured men imagine they either are or could easily become as proficient in literature and philosophy as those who are successful in these studies and whom they accordingly treat as on an intellectual equality possibly both causes combine in their influence it is certain however that the man who is an ordinary mathematician natural philosopher philologist antiquary artist sculptor musician or who has only a moderate acquaintance with a single ancient or foreign language is usually more respected even in large towns than a really remarkable philosopher poet or writer consequently poetry and philosophy the noblest grandest and most arduous of things pertaining to humanity in the supreme efforts of art and science are in the present day the most neglected faculties in the world even in their professed followers manual arts rank higher than these noble things for no one would pretend to a knowledge of them unless he really possessed it nor could this knowledge be acquired without study and exertion in short the poet and the philosopher derive no benefit in life from their genius and studies except perhaps the glory rendered to them by a very few people poetry and philosophy resemble each other in that they are both as unproductive and barren of esteem and honor as of all other advantages end of section seventeen parini on glory chapters seven through nine